Guys, this is going to be an awesome episode with Steve Brown of Flyfish Guanaja. And this is a really special episode. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. Steve has a very diverse background and he's a very passionate person about uh, fly fishing, uh, about life. And um, this is going to be a really neat episode, so I hope you enjoy it. I want to encourage you guys to follow Steve on his Instagram account and check out his website and follow him on Facebook. Uh, I got a lot out of this episode. I just want to thank him for coming on. I also want to thank you guys for your loyal support of this podcast. And I want to encourage you that uh, you can send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com you can also follow along on my instagram at jscottoutdoors you can send me a direct message there and i want to thank the following sponsors of this podcast that make this podcast possible gohunt.com insider uh, kuyu ultralight hunting phonescope.com and the outdoorsman's and you can go down in the show notes and see the discount and the discount codes that you can use, the J. Scott promo code uh, with these companies. Uh, I thank them for their support, and I want to get right into this episode with Steve Brown. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I am sitting on location in Carbondale, Colorado. I've got Steve Brown here. He's with Flyfish Guanaja out of Honduras, and I'm excited to hear about your operation down there and I follow you and your wife on Instagram your wife owns Fernie Fly Fishing and has an outfitting business up in Fernie BC which my wife and I about 15 years ago were able to go up there and enjoy some of the awesome cutthroat fishing up there but um, first and foremost um, it's glad to have I'm glad to have you here thanks nice to be here nice to be in one spot long enough to sit down yeah, you're you're traveling all the time. I know we've um, tried to make a few arrangements to to make this happen, and you guys are very busy with all the different fishing schedules you have. Uh, Steve, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background, um, maybe where you grew up, and kind of how you got into fishing? Yeah, well, I come from Denver, Colorado. Um, born there in 1976. Grew up fishing um, all over the Rocky Mountains with my dad and my grandpa. And um, always loved being outside, skiing and fishing. Just was blessed to grow up that way. And, Mainly fly um, fishing or all sorts of fishing? Um, started spin fishing um, when I was eight years old. Learned how to fly fish um, along with my dad. He was he learned. We switched over together, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandpa had fly fish, and we spent a lot of time together, my grandpa and I, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, But once I was able to drive and team up with a few buddies that also, like, grew up with a little fly fishing um we were off to the south platte and the arkansas as teenagers and then especially into college i went to colorado college in colorado springs which was very close to the south platte and i discovered cheeseman canyon fell in love with um, a very challenging trout fishery that was in fact um provided more challenges in some ways than um the college i went to learning how to try to catch these big rainbows on tiny flies was um, it a function of the fish were really smart or technical fishing or, or, or too much pressure? What what caused that? Um, well, the South Platte's just a, a, an awesome 
challenging trout fishery where they eat very small size 22 to 26 flies and um, you've got to know the right color and you're using 6, 7x so it's very light tippet catching um, you know 20 plus inch rainbows and, and they do get pressure um, but it's just it's the kind of trout fishery that if you are going to be in fly fishing because you love a challenge then that sort of fishery will really call your name so it did for me and I, I fish it a lot in college now is that the dream stream um, no, same river. The okay. South Platte um, is has the Dream Stream. Um, that's near Spinney, okay. an 11 mile reservoir. But this is uh, Cheeseman Canyon um, near Deckers. It's a it's a canyon, okay. and so that's why I loved it. Um, that's cool. It's, it's got the kind of intense beauty of a canyon. So, but it's a tailwater. So, so those mm-hmm. fish have the benefit of all year long having lots of things to eat lots of hatches and um what i've found on rivers like that is more than a freestone where they're not near as picky when they have an abundance of aquatic insects to choose from they switch from one to another they kind of you know you you, you're you're on them you're on them and then all of a sudden boom they shut off and they've switched to something else would you would you agree with that or can you elaborate a little bit on that um, well, yeah, a tailwater fishery gives you that year-round opportunity, which was great in college. So it, when it was snowing, I was the only foot tracks in there and stuff like that. But, yeah, as far as their food source, um, they're eating year-round so they get bigger. Um, and uh, they do. They have the luxury of choosing what they want to eat because there's so much food source because the water stays a more constant temperature mm-hmm. as opposed to a freestone, um, the damned rivers can hold warmer water throughout the year so bugs throughout the year and um yeah for for those reasons they they get challenging and picky but that's really the essence of fly fishing for me anyway is is you know i'm drawn to a challenge Mm -hmm. um and that's that's cool so as college kind of progressed and um you were fishing there on the south platte um what other adventures or, or where did you go from there where did your fly fishing adventures take you? Yeah, so um, I actually fished a, a lot, enough in college to feel like I was equipped to guide um, as a job right out of college. And John Duncan from Scott Flyrod Company came to Colorado College and did a, um, a seminar on the fly fishing industry for our business department that I'd been taking some classes in. And um, his presentation... Um, compelled me to go and talk to Telluride Outside where he had worked before and to see if they could possibly um, need a job, if they had a job for me of some sort. So I, I because of John Duncan and his, and his presentation at Colorado College, I went to um, his part of, of the world of fly fishing, which was Scott Flyrod Company out of Montrose and Telluride and Telluride Outside and um, actually showed up to Telluride Outside uh, with my thesis that was written about fly fishing in the English department and asking for a job of any sort that they had in the fly fishing business at Telluride Outside. So I became, um, actually I started off as waiter boy. They didn't even have a job in the shop for me. So I was responsible to uh, get the waiters back in, in the shed. And that was really just kind of a joke job. They could cut me loose at noon every day to learn the local fishery. Um, and then by the time a guy didn't show up within a month. I, I was off 
off running and I was guiding in the summers. And then I had continued my education, earned a master's in English at Colorado State University um, and continued guiding in the summer. But while I was in at uh, earning my master's, I designed a course called Reading and Riding the River <clears throat> through fly fishing, boating and backpacking and had the luxury of teaching that course back at Colorado College. And so that was when I really was able to combine what I was studying academically with what I was falling in love with on the river and fly fishing into a, a college course that involved floating the Black Canyon with college students, um, backpacking up in the White White River mountain range. And um, that's kind of gives you a, that course really embodies what my career was back then with education and fishing. It really all summed up in this college course that I taught. What would you say the nuts and bolts of that college course were or are? Yeah, well, it was real it was reading and writing about rivers throughout um time and cultures. So we read um Buddhist meditations on water up through um classic literature like Ernest Hemingway and Old Man in the Sea and Big Two-Hearted Rivers all the way up to contemporary fly fishing literature. And then Combine those readings with our on-the-ground experiences fly fishing into their own writing. So they, they took their experiences um, fueled by the readings that, that we provided and then came up with their own um, fishing stories and then a final paper. And uh, that was a summer course. It was awesome. I taught that five years in a row. That's really neat. That's really neat. So at, at that point in time when you were Telluride outside... Right. Mm-hmm. Um, were you living in Montrose or were you living in uh, in Telluride? Okay, in Telluride. Telluride. Yeah. And so the river there is the San Miguel. Yep, San Miguel, and we also fish the Dolores. Okay. And uh, the Uncompadre, uh-huh. but that is where I um, was introduced to the Black Canyon and okay. learned how to row. So my second season guiding at a Telluride outside, I became a Black Canyon guide. So uh-huh. how many years now have you been rowing in the Black Canyon? Uh, surprisingly to me, we, I, I just finished my 18th June, 18th stonefly hatch in a row. So 18 years. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I I was fortunate maybe 15 or 20 years ago to, to go in and fish around the East Portal. And then this nice. summer here being in Carbondale, uh, was able to go over. I've been three times now, uh, come down Chucker Trail and packed packed our own raft on our back and and done it three times and i've fallen in love with the gunnison i've fallen in love with that canyon and the whole everything about it it's just there's it seems like there's every bit of types of water there there's you know open like around ute park where it's you know opens up and then there's you know tight canyon walls on both sides um and of course you know the fish are big and uh the second trip I went, I hit the salmon fly hatch. I mean, they were just, they were crawling all over us and fish were going nuts. I don't know that I've ever seen fish go that crazy. Seemed like they would just come out of nowhere and hit the fly and, you know, splash up on the, the walls and just, you know, 18 years of experience down there in the canyon. You've probably seen some crazy stuff. Well, it is a, a phenomenal hatch it's an entomological phenomena is what it is the fish eat 80 percent of their food of the year during the month of june when those bugs hatch and um the black canyon the gunnison river the black canyon is a 
very healthy trout fishery with um, big fish. And there's a whole level of fish that don't come out except for during the stonefly hatch. There's a lot of big rainbows and browns that you won't see the rest of the year because they live in the depths. Mm -hmm. They don't need to come up. They're on to predator feeding. They'll eat another fish and be good for a while. They'll eat, you know, another animal. Um, They're so big. But they do come up for the stonefly hatch. So during June, you see just a, a mega um, trout population come to the surface. And it's the, the throwing those dry flies against the black granite walls and having those fish come up against the walls. There's nothing like it. Probably the best dry fly fishing in the world. I don't know how it could be better. Yeah, it's it's truly amazing. Now, you're calling it a stonefly hatch, which it is because the salmon flies are the largest of the stoneflies. How, in your mind, how do they get the name uh, instead of just being called stoneflies, how do they get the name salmon flies? Um, well, it's the salmon-colored okay. belly. They've got that, that orange salmon-colored body. Nothing to do with, like, the salmon fish species. Okay. Um, and It's and actually Californicus terranarsis. Terranarsis. Is, is the Latin name for the bug. And those bugs, um, can you give me a little bit of um, lesson on those bugs? Like, once they get into their adult stage and they're flying around like how old are those bugs um they take three years in a nymph stage um to hatch so they're on a three-year life cycle um, which is why we fish stonefly nymphs year-round down there do really well there's always stoneflies in the river but um after three years of, of growing that that batch of stoneflies will come up and um they will They'll they'll hatch. They'll, they'll crawl to the rocks or to the grasses and crawl out of their little exoskeleton and um, fly away and live for about two weeks maybe um, or less. There's different lifespans, but at the most a couple of weeks, long enough to fly, um, mate, l- lay eggs, return to the water, lay eggs, start the process over again, and die. In the um progression of the hatch uh i'm just speaking about what i know of it you obviously know a lot more but so they start down lower in the river say um below pleasure park and then they work their way up the canyon what causes that progression up through the canyon and i would assume maybe there are even up by the east portal or maybe higher by now um or maybe you could tell well, me the, are they the, still going and the, what causes that progression yeah. up through the canyon um the bugs don't move up river they just hatch at, at a certain temperature so the once the water reaches 57 degrees those bugs start hatching and the lower river reaches that temperature earlier okay. so typically you have the bugs hatching primarily down near the pleasure park on the lower gunny and then as the water warms up, they, they hatch further up river. Okay. So um, the bugs are actually in the water. They're just adult stage hatching when the water temp gets that 57 degrees. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And because it's a more of a higher desert down in the lower river, it warms up quicker there. Gotcha. And then up, up the canyon, they hatch. And gotcha. they don't get all the way to the east portal. Um, we don't fish stoneflies all the way up there, but there's some legendary spots upriver that we don't fish commercially, but you can hike into places 
that, that my yeah. friends would probably not want me to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's truly an amazing thing, and, and I, I've been fortunate to see the salmon fly hatch on the Madison uh, in Montana years ago, and it was pretty awesome. But I have to say that the one particular day that I was down there on, I guess it was a couple Mondays ago, it was just unbelievable. Fish were really keyed in. That that will lead me to one more question, then we'll 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 get on talking about stuff. But the fish, when those stoneflies are swimming and cr- crawling to the bank, are they more keyed in on those nymphs, or once they crawl out and become adult stage, do the fish become more keen on them in their adult stage when they're, you know? flying around or landing on the water in your opinion um there's certainly a time when nymphing becomes less effective than dry fly fishing when they've just keyed on the dry flies um you know myself and and my anglers included will choose to dry fly whenever given the chance so if you lean on the dry fly throughout the hatch it'll you can always catch fish on dries but they're they're always eating whatever they can there's just a certain time when the bugs are in clouds by the thousands where all the attention is up. Because um, it's easier? Because they're just easier prey up on the water? Yeah, easier, bigger prey, and just so much of it. But while the big ones are taking the feeding slots, eating the hat, you know, the dries, then there's just the whole armada of smaller browns that still get to eat nymphs, and there's just always eating going on. I would ask you, in your 18 years... What's the biggest, well, two questions. What's the biggest brown trout you've seen take, you know, caught? And what's the biggest rainbow in the canyon? Well, the biggest rainbow that I've seen, I actually caught as a gear boatman and rode myself into it many years ago. And this fish was pushing 30 inches, if anything. Um, just dwarfed any 20 inch fish that we ever had in there and there's a whole level of fish that is in the 30 inch range and i've seen also the brown trout that size as well during stonefly hatch um there's been 25 to 30 inch trout landed we usually amongst the guides we know exactly where they are once one is spotted and once one is spotted it's just a matter of trips before someone catches them or has a next story of how we broke them off or whatever but (laughs) Um, the biggest rainbow I actually was lucky enough to catch uh, rowing myself into it um, as a gear boatman. That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, uh, and then uh, you and your wife uh, have a place here in Carbondale, and that's what led me to, to know about you. I actually mm-hmm. met you, I believe, last year before I left here, and um, you're pretty uh, familiar with the Roaring Fork, which is kind of our home river here in this valley. Um, what are your thoughts about the Roaring Fork and have you been out lately and what kind of conditions have you seen out there? Yeah, the Roaring Fork's an amazing river and uh, it's an amazing river valley. I actually moved from Telluride, Colorado to uh, the Roaring Fork Valley for the fishing. Um, They're just bigger, wilder rivers that that just sustain wild fish um, year after year. And the Roaring Fork... Although it's known for being um, fished, you know, there's there's some popular um, guide services, and it's it's right near I-70 in Aspen, Colorado, and some people are, you know, dismiss it or, or maybe are intimidated by the amount of people that fish here, but 
um, my last four years here on the floor guiding um, hasn't been that experience. It's very rarely crowded. It's full of wild fish. Um, the dry fly fishing is phenomenal. Right now there's green drakes throughout the day happening um, along with yellow sallies, PMDs, caddis. It's phenomenal fishing. Even with boats, you can just pull over and let a few boats by. Um, often we, I would put on later than the standard afternoon trip and fish till dark and not even see a boat, mm-hmm. you know, or start earlier. And it's, it's really a great fishery. And for like a destination fishery, um, it is a destination fishery. People come here to fish the Roaring Fork in the Colorado. Whereas living in Telluride, the San Miguel is a great river, but it was more of a byproduct. We're in Telluride. Sure. Let's go try fishing. Yeah. Whereas here you really would come. Yeah. People don't necessarily travel to go fish the San Miguel. They fish it out of convenience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those green drakes in a normal water year like this, do you feel like the green drakes are kind of spread out and hatching throughout the river because things are going well as opposed to if in low water years? It seems like in low water years, it's almost like, you know, they're at West Bank. Okay, they're two miles up, and they just kind of really slowly progress. Where I feel like on normal or higher water years, it seems like they're you know hatching from Carbondale all the way down to Glenwood, and more of a sporadic type hatch, or not sporadic, but more of a widespread yeah. hatch. Thoughts on that? Well, um, we have the same kind of kind of activity in the black canyon on low water years and high water years or, or, or really any river the more water is just more life so you have more bugs you're going to have longer hatches more sustained hatches and my my simple answer to that is more water is more life you know whereas when you have lower water years you're going to be lucky to string out that hatch throughout the river sure. um, when it's just big snow years we'll have 30 days of dry fly fishing for stoneflies in the black canyon um, low drought years, it'll go off one trip out of 10. will make it. It'll be a three day window. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's our biggest thing here out West in Colorado is just water. hoping for snow and yeah. more water. Yep. For sure. Uh, so I want to know kind of where the progression came for you from being a, you know, trout fishermen really into trout fishing to lead you to saltwater fishing and ultimately down in Honduras and your your business that you're in now, uh, which I've been following on Instagram. Um, kind of how did that progression happen? Well, I um, was always fascinated with Central America and the Caribbean. And so I, I took several backpacking trips down there. Um, after grad school, in between teaching jobs, um, after a guide season. So I had probably about four or five, two to three month, um, backpacking adventures in Central America. I would buy a ticket into Panama and out of Mexico and have three months in between, but you know, and by myself go. and just go, I'd have a fly rod, sometimes a surfboard, but mostly in the Caribbean, exploring um, Caribbean flats and learning how to bonefish and just rediscovering fly fishing. Um, you know, as a trout guide, what was compelling to me about trout fishing and still is, is teaching others, catching fish through others, showing other people the passion, seeing that first fish caught every day is what keeps me guiding, you know. But um, for me personally, 
trout fishing is best experienced through others. So this was a new discovery for me to, to love fishing again my, myself and mm-hmm. learned about bonefish and just loved the environments they were in, loved speaking Spanish and was all through Mexico and Belize and, and Honduras and Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And, um, but ended up in the Bay Islands of Honduras a lot. All my adventures um, seemed to have somewhere in my two or three months stopped in the Bay Islands of Honduras and I stayed like a month and made a lot of friends there and found a fishery that I was usually the only one in was the main thing. You know, Belize is is pretty discovered and so is Mexico. And so I was typically the only one with a fly rod on an island where there were some divers and, you know, lots of local sustenance, fishing and living. But I was like, the weird guy with the nine foot rod and everybody's wondering what was up. And, um, so after several trips down to the balance of Honduras, I became fascinated with Guanaja, which is one of the three big islands of the Bay islands, but it was the hardest one to get to. So Roatan's well known, Utila's pretty well known. And then Guanaja just kind of falls off the map and there were no boats that would take you there. There was no airplanes. So the mystery and the intrigue of this place grew each trip because I could never get there. Around the same time of my last, around the same time as my last trip to the Bay Islands and, and backpacking through Central America, I was teaching my summer course at Colorado College. And my four years in a row, I taught reading and writing the river through fly fishing and boating. The fifth year, I designed a course that reflected my travels, and it was called Reading and Writing Rivers and Oceans of Honduras. And I got that approved through the Colorado College summer programs and um, taught a 30-day travel writing course, basically, where we spent 10 days in the jungles of um, Honduras on the mainland, where there was a Class 4 river and zip line, and we read about rivers and did our river portion that was similar to Colorado. And then we followed the study of the river and the river itself out to the ocean and got to um, Mango Creek Lodge, which is in Roatan, which is a fly fishing lodge. So our, our ocean component of that course was fly fishing focused. Again, I met a group of anglers who talked about Guanaja being the most bonefish of the Bay Islands, the most permit and the least people and nobody fishing there. Well, I came back to Telluride really excited about Guanaja, dreaming about Guanaja. The fact that I hadn't been there and couldn't be there and the stories and the stories just built this place in my mind that I knew I had to go to that I felt was calling my name. And coincidentally, I was talking to John Duncan, the guy I work for in Telluride, about these dreams of getting to Guanaja. And he told me that coincidentally, his brother had been to Guanaja, which kind of blew my mind. I didn't think anybody had been to Guanaja. Um, outside of Guanahans, but it turned out Scotty Duncan had a relationship to one of the islands there off the coast of Guanaja. Guanaja is an island about eight by 10 miles and there's several keys around it. And his wife worked for, um, a man, a family who owns a key that long story short, they had a location that we could use as a lodge. And I had a client list that could fill it. And, um, with the the location came a caretaker that was willing to train as a fishing guide. So not a lot of people know that I started Fly Fish Guanaja 10 years ago before meeting my business partner or ever stepping foot on Guanaja. That's awesome. Um, That's a little known fact. That is awesome. That is awesome. So um, 
give me a little bit of a geographic lesson on Guanaja and where it is in relation to, you know. Yeah, so um, Honduras is the country down from Belize, south and east of Belize. Um, so the Caribbean islands off the coast of Honduras are a lot like the Belizean islands. Um, in fact, 150 miles east of Belize are the islands of Honduras. Um, Honduras is a little tricky geographically because it goes from, the, the coastline goes from west to east as opposed from north to south. We picture Central America going down, mm. but Honduras takes this jog out east. Um, and then the next country is Nicaragua. So we're right between Belize and Nicaragua on the Caribbean side. And then Guanaja is the easternmost island of the Bay Islands of Honduras. Okay. And what season do you run your operation down there? Um, we're open year-round. Um, we actually have trips there every month of the year this year. But our main season is February through June. That's when we're booked week after week after week in a row. Okay. Um, the fishing stays good through July, August, um, September, October. Those are great months there. Um, I, d I just typically, typically come back to the States and the Rocky Mountains. So we've given the fishery a rest. And, um, but now that we've grown, we, we have groups that come throughout the year. Once you get to November, December, January, you've got very rainy months and you're rolling the dice. You could have great fishing, but you would want to have time on your hands. If you can come for 10 days or 14 days and, and be okay with the northern storm blowing through, and um, you can have some of the best fishing in the fall because the tide's really high. So we get very big fish come in, but you've got northern storms typically that you deal with. So we don't book full then. On a normal day or every day, you know, normal occurrence there, are you primarily bone fishing or are you primarily permit fishing? Um, that's a great question. When we got there 10 years ago, we focused on bone fish because we had to catch fish. And the fish, the bone fishery is amazing. They're bigger bones than you see on average in the Caribbean. Um, but they are definitely eating things in particular. So they don't just eat your average gotcha from the Bahamas. We had to design flies specifically to work in Guanaja. So we really focused on bonefish. And then we'd see permit once in a while and cast to them. And we, by luck, would catch one or two a season. Um, but in the last four or five years, I'd say our, our focus and emphasis um, has really gone from bonefish more to permit. Um, one, because um, our guests have been coming back year after year and they've done really well with bones over the years and they've now gone on to wanting to catch permit um, we've also learned how to catch permit better um, because of our guides I, I trained all our guides told them what fly fishing was when we got there so now they're 10-year veterans most of them so they've gotten a lot better um, our flies have gotten better and our clients have gotten better so everything's come together for um we've turned into I, I'd say we're now we're now known for probably more of a permit fishing lodge with some bone fishing versus a bone fishing lodge with some permit. Um and we're attracting that permit angler more, I guess. What is it about permit that makes them so special? I have yet to go permit fishing. Um but I have a lot of friends that have and permits like, you know, it it's it's a special fish. What is it about it? Um, well, back to that, like 
challenge component of fly fishing. You know, if we were trying to catch fish the easiest way, we, none of us would be fly fishing, right? So permit fishing, permit are the hardest and coolest fish to catch on a fly in the world. So to me, that embodies the essence of fly fishing more than any other fish um, because we're in it for the challenge. And it's such a challenge that people can go years um, without catching them and trying, spending Yeah, I mean, I know people that have like gone crazy. on many trips and they still haven't landed a permit. Absolutely. It's a labor of love. And I've said I, I love to hate them and, and hate to love them. And um, it's their... They have big eyes. They look at your your fly. They're, they're in an area um, full of predators, so they're on edge. Um, they're completely aware. They're looking down at your fly, seeing that it's made out of feathers and and hair, and it's not a real crab or a real shrimp. And um, and then once you hook them, if you get them to bite, well, first of all, just getting your fly to them is challenging because of um, just the nature of the situation you're in flat calm water if you miscast you spook them if you're too close you spook them um if they see your line they spook but if if you present the fly and you're lucky enough to do that and they actually eat it's almost impossible to know when they eat you don't feel it um kind of like in nymphing for trout if you don't set the hook you're not going to feel it right um to know when a permit eats is really challenging he can suck your fly in and spit it out without you ever knowing it's it's insane. They'll they'll snap your fly in half without you even feeling it. Um, they'll suck it right into their crunchers, break it in half, and spit it out. Um, your guide might know that it happened, begging you to set the hook, um, or he might not. You know, the the best Caribbean guides know when a permit eats, and that takes superhuman vision and and knowledge of every movement a permit can make. Um, when they're looking at your fly and tailing on it. They have subtle tail quivers that can tell you they're eating your fly that only a true pro will know, you know. So there's all these things that come into it that make it so challenging. And then you've just got a fish that now is going to be the best fighting fish for its size that you've ever had on. And then they're just beautiful. That that black tail and silver body and just unique fish shape. Um, there's no fish like it. It, there really isn't um, in fly fishing. Now, what will a permit um, variation in size, you know, what will a little one be? What will a big one be? Yeah. What's an average one? Um, a small permit, a permit that, like, still counts as a permit is going to be even two pounds, two to five pounders. There's, like, a school of small permit. You can catch a two to five pound permit. And he's that still counts as catching a permit. It's legit, yeah. yeah. That works. People are stoked. Yeah. Um, that can take the pressure off of even five years of hunting them. Um, of course, people tend to want a, a bigger one, but an average permit from what I'm used to, which is Belize and Mexico and, and Honduras, would be around 10 to 12 pounds. It's like your average permit. You know, smaller ones are still cool. That's like a, that's like a great permit. Mm -hmm. um, once you get into... Like eighteen to twenty pound permit, you're you're into the trophy class already. That's already a, a lifetime fish. And then twenty to thirty pounds is like, you know, even even cooler. And then once you've gotten, if you could catch a permit over thirty pounds, um, 
it's almost sad because there's not a whole lot else except another bigger one um, to accomplish. Like you've reached the if, pinnacle once you've done if, that. If you're goal-oriented, you yeah. know, in the sport, that's that's kind of the the last straw. But um, permit fishing teaches you not to be so goal-oriented or you would go insane. Mm-hmm. You know, we're out there enjoying the process, enjoying the shots, enjoying the failures. And when it comes together, that's, that's even cooler. But um, it's not a goal-oriented kind of endeavor or you'd sure. be happy like, one percent of the time right yeah yeah. (laughs) rush you'd do something else (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah have you had situations where people come out and they fish and everything's just right and someone might land a couple in a day is that ever happened where it's just everything lines up and it's just on but it certainly does happen and it's um, happened more for us recently because of our breakthroughs and flies and um and the more permit we have more permit in the fishery now than we, when we did because of the catch and release ethic that's been created by us being there. So we, yes, we have caught multiple permit in a day. Um, some of the best permit fisheries in the world, um, I say best probably by just because of volume and the most permit, like in Belize and Mexico, you'll hear the random story of somebody catching five in a day, but that same guy will probably tell you he didn't catch one for the next three years and did three trips a year. And, um, so that happens. Um, now there's a new fishery I'm going to tell you about that we opened up this past year, which is there's kind of two different conversations because there's the permit fishing in Guanaja and then there's the permit fishing at the faraway keys. And that's a place where you really could catch multiple permit in a day. Now, where is this? Um, so this being our 10th season in Guanaja, um, was a significant one because we opened up, a new fishery um, that I named the Faraway Keys, and they are 160 miles to the east of Guanaja, almost to Nicaragua, um, about 45 miles off the Mosquito Coast, north of Puerto Limpira. Um, there's a, a pretty vast fishery that has never been fly fished um, out there, and I've been hearing about it since my arrival in Guanaja from my staff because it's a lobster fishing spot. So. On the off season, one of the few opportunities there is beyond their fly fishing job is to go um, in the lobster lobster season. And so they've been at these keys as fly fishing guides doing the dangerous lobster season, but noticing the thousands of bonefish that are there, the size, the huge bonefish that are there in the permit fishery. And they come back and have told me about it for years. And I haven't been able to get there until this past season. Um, that's because it's 160 miles away. It's a 10 to 30 or 15 to 25 hour boat ride each way, which is not, hasn't been appropriate for our guests or even me in the time that I've had. Um, there was a helicopter that just showed up in the Bay Islands of Honduras last season, a helicopter from Canada, a Canadian pilot named Paul Kendall brought his A-star chopper down, which finally gave me an avenue to bring guests out there, which would make it worth for me to go look at it and explore it. And so this all came together last year. Um, when the pilot agreed to embark on this project with me. So I got four different groups of my best guests um, lined up to be the first guests at the Faraway Keys. The same time, we raised money for a film that's called Beyond the Horizon, Fish for Change, um, led by a production company called Cold Collaborative. Um, Shannon Vanderveer is the is the producer of that company. He's a good friend and also a top-tier filmmaker and their production company cold collaborative is no joke and um, we teamed up on a documentary 
um, that showcases the real-time exploration of this new fishery through the narrative of my head guide, Rankin, who came out of gang life um, as a teenager that he engaged in. Um, he had to engage in gang life and drug running because... To survive. To survive. Uh, Hurricane Mechik, Wanaha, he had a sick child, and those are the decisions he made, but they were leading him towards a very short life. And I actually met Rankin at the Jungle River Lodge on that college course that I took, and he was from Guanaja. And um, our friendship has carried this company, really, through the last 10 years. Um, so this movie showcases Rankin's life story, our friendship, and then the real-time exploration and discovery of the faraway keys and all the stress that it took to get there. And the, and the production crew had the luxury of being on site in our darkest hours of trying to pull off this project. And the reason it was hard, um, well, a number of reasons, but getting jet fuel out to the faraway keys was a nightmare. That's the most illegal thing along with cocaine and money basically to ship across open sea. And we required 800 gallons of jet fuel at this base um, because the helicopter needed to resupply. So once I went down the wormhole of trying to do that legally, it almost killed the project. Um, it also created an awareness of the truly dangerous area that we were going into. Um, so not only did the we require permission to move this fuel with this 100-foot freight boat, um, I, I needed protection of my anglers and my staff out there because we there there is history of pirating out there and we're going into a complete lawless terrain basically. So what made the project work was, um, me working from dark to dark for about three months, um, talking in Spanish to two different lawyers, um, talking with the commander of the Navy, the Ministry of Defense, the Marina Mercante, the Board of Tourism in Honduras, and all of these groups had to come together to give us both the permission and then the protection that we ended up um, getting. We had three soldiers out there with us on this little key during our fishing that were fully camoed out with M16s. And um, when we went back for our extended season, I decided we decided that we didn't need the military there for the second round. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do going forward, but um, that just gives you kind of an idea of sort of the intensity of the project. But for the challenge it was to get there, there was an equal proportionate serenity that we experienced once we were there. Um, truly the best bone fishing I've ever heard of. And um, I'm going to have to say the best permit fishing got to be in the world right now it, it was phenomenal the, this was like a fishery that had never been touched by anything um at least the flats and the bonefish and the permit and the jacks and the cuda and the sharks and it, it's it was kind of like it's kind of like a galapagos it's everything in the caribbean that swims the biggest of those are at the faraway keys basically unbelievable and and at what point did you realize this is really happening like this this is as good as i thought it was going to be or even better like how did you know right away we knew right away when we landed because to greet us at the far at our base at the faraway keys was was a school of about a thousand bonefish accompanied by six more schools that went from like another school of 500 school of 200 
um, all the way down to singles, there must have been 3,000 bonefish surrounding a two-acre key that we landed on, literally. The first angler caught 50 bonefish in an hour and a half. Oh, my goodness. Like, legit. That was Dave McKenna from (laughs) Douglas Outdoors. You could ask him. And the the bonefish averaged seven pounds. Oh, my goodness. Um, And and trying to talk, trying to relay these numbers and fish reports through my guides to the public just made me look like a jerk. It it doesn't make any sense. Those numbers don't add up until I finally was able to see and experience it myself so I can freely throw out these ridiculous numbers. Like a year ago, I would have said, this is what's out there. And people are like, have you been there? No. No. You know, Um, but, but, but it's real. We were surprised by the permit fishery. The bone fishery is what compelled us to go. No one had spent time in the little deeper flats that connected all these keys looking for permit ever in history. So we dragged two of my flats pongas behind a 45-foot snapper boat. And so we had two of my pongas out there equipped with the casting deck and the pulling platform and everything. And so we were able to take a look at the flats. And my goodness, um, when the tide's moving right, you don't go... 10 to 20 minutes without seeing another shot. So permit fishing, seeing a permit is a great day of permit fishing. It's kind of a standard thing to say. One sight. You know, truly a great day of permit fishing is seeing more than than one and even catching one right. But that's, a permit angler should be satisfied seeing one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Here, you, you, you don't go like hours like you do on every other permit fishery I've seen without having more shots and the fish are big they're um they're singles they're doubles they're sixes 12s um we did see a couple schools of 30 to 50 smaller fish but for some reason most of what we see are like two to six permit but they're just shot after shot and we started catching those right away and then what really put the permit fishery into overdrive was when we learned that they're also on the manta rays. So there's tons of manta rays that are the size of like a huge dining table. And over half of them have permit underneath them. And if you cast a shrimp pattern or a crab pattern, better a shrimp though, to these manta rays, permit come out and eat them like jacks. I've only heard of this in Cuba. I haven't been to Cuba, so I haven't experienced it. So are it. they hiding under the, the, the They rays? live with the rays. So the rays mud, and they're, they're collaborating. They work together. They, the permit feed because of the rays basically kick up mud. Does and, it and, also and so give they, them a protection somewhat from predators? Absolutely, yeah. Because they're under, kind of underneath yeah. them? Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they just, they're friends. They f- feel safer. I haven't really thought about the predator move. Um, it's much down there, but it totally makes sense. They're huge predators down there and they are safe in numbers. That's why they fish school. Right. And, um, permit were actually ended up being like the main species in the water. The nurse sharks had permit with them. The bonefish had permit with them. The rays had permit with them. The jacks had permit with them. It was like the constant was permit. It, it truly was um, just one of the best, su- most surprising things that came after one of the most challenging things we all experienced in our lives, you know. What month was that that you were down there? We were there in March. And then our, so the month of March, we were there. April, we kind of decompressed, um, got back to Guanaja, and then realized that the film crew wanted to return um, to catch a few more fish and get a few more elements for the film. So I built an extended season out of the need for the film crew to return. 
Um, a couple of the guests that came in the first in May came back. A couple of the guests that came in March, March. came back in May along with some other ones. So I did um, a four-week, you know, first exploratory season, then followed it up with a three-week extended first season. And then, you know, and I'm already booked, actually, for, for next year. Um, will be our first official season. Um, and that's going to be really my challenge is going to be to protect this fishery and keep it like it was for us for generations to come. And to do that, I've immediately limited big time the amount of anglers and days we're going to have there. So for example, we only are, we only have four at a time, just those two boats. And it's only going to be three and a half days a week and only two weeks at a time with a week off and only three or four weeks a year. And I've actually just today talked with, um, the Mar Alliance, which is a foundation that does ocean research to protect fish all through the Mesoamerican reef. And they're particularly interested in this area that we fished. There's so many issues, but um, we're going to be not only um, having our first exploratory, our first real season out there, we're going to be collaborating with some local organizations that are actually in place to protect and preserve um this fishery which is endangered because of some indigenous peoples and and how they live out there with netting and such so those are more complicated issues but sure and i i assume also in um guanaha there's also issues with people that have lived there for years and fished there for years and how has that been dealing with those issues? That's a great question. So we've had a great 10 years in Guanaja, and it hasn't been easy. To bring tourism um, to a place like Guanaja where they lived on sustenance um, is a challenge. You have to have a change in the way that they utilize the fishery, and you have to give them the confidence somehow that there's a long-term benefit for taking that easy meal away from them that day. Right. And we have had luckily 10 years of being able to slowly develop a a sustainable business and fishery um, to the point where the people see what we're doing and see the benefits of what we're doing and support us like crazy. Like they built a, grocery store for us they've built a gas station for us they built restaurants just for our guests we're the only we've been the only tourists in guanaja for many years in a row there's a few divers showing up now um but the community impact of this little fly fishing operation has been so huge um that they've been protecting the fish also that's why the permit fishing is getting better um the challenge for us is now how do we go to this new fishery um, off the Mosquito Coast where um, we're not providing direct jobs, obviously. And um, it, it's we, we've got a, a challenging future ahead of us out there because of the Mosquito Indian people that occupy the area have struggled to survive. And the way that they've done so is by over-harvesting the ocean, just like everywhere else issues, you know, netting, netting where they they everything dies and and shark fishing all the way to the small ones and just not sustainable living but it's not for me to go judge them and change their ways right so um they're complex issues and we have been able to um we've been able to 
exist in Guanaja because of our integration and our slow integration and our respect of the local people. And to do this out at the faraway keys is going to be a different nut to crack. Um, but I have my whole Honduran team um, behind me that has grown to, you know, 15 full-time employees and, and then all of their relatives that are helping, which really get up to about a hundred people that are behind and supporting what we're doing. And these hundred people, I mean, people that actually help from taxi drivers to guides to cooks to lawyers to politicians to that. And then that's not counting the several thousand people that are rooting for us, to, for us to be safe and for this to work and for what it means for a greater community. Um, so I feel like we're going to be able to fish there safely. And I, I just want it to only even get better than it was. But um, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on, on what goes on out there. The film's coming out in be done in about a month and i'm not sure where it's going to premiere we're going to be submitting it to some film festivals and um but definitely keep keep an eye out for beyond the horizon by cold collaborative sounds awesome it's going to be a cool how long will it be roughly um right now we have a rough cut it's 25 minutes that doesn't include any of the second um journey out there and we actually caught six more permit on film out there and they really filmed the galapagos type feel with the turtles and the birds and the the grouper and the exotic species of fish so they have a lot more i think they have what it takes to make a really solid 45 minute film that would fit into the one hour slot framework for television but um he's also not going to stretch it to 45 minutes for that reason so if it's really a 30 minute film you know Mm-hmm. I, we all want it to be as long, you know, as long as it can be, but mm-hmm. what's really appropriate, we'll, we'll see. They started with, they thought it was going to be 12 minutes, um, but the story expanded for From them. what you saw in the rough cut, from what you know in your your brain and what you've seen, did, did they capture it from an essence of like what you know it is as good as they could? That's another great, great question, Jay. Um, Shannon... Van Devere was the only man for this job. It's uh, because of our friendship and his love for Guanaja. He'd been there before, and he, he actually made a film for our student program that you got to check out. It's a short five-minute film about our student program that he did for free with limited time and resources, in it, and it's amazing. Um, so even if there was somebody that had his talent, you had to have the passion and love for Guanaja and the people in our operation to even get close to the story. Mm-hmm. And then that also took an open mind to listen um, to me. And I, I hate to say I'm, I'm the only one that really knows all the nuts and bolts of the story. So our friendship allowed him to be open to my suggestions, mm-hmm. basically. And I, I've been kind of trapped in telling the story in Guanaja. Since I'm the owner, I'm always uh, appearing to make a commercial or something. But this film is is a complete story, and it's it's about real things and not even a, a commercial by any means but I, I got to imagine that he almost had to be pretty patient with it and let it unfold rather than and I'm sure you probably thought being you know wanting it to be just right but you kind of had to let it come together right like just had to yeah. be totally patient with it and let it happen well um the the story was is driven by the hero Rankin Um, And that's how we went into the project is they wanted to focus on one person and and Rankin has the character and the life story to shoulder 
a film like this, which is rare. Um, you know, somebody, how they act on film can make or break a film like that. Um, so the film was going to be about Rankin, but when the film crew came and saw what was happening, they realized that there was no way to tell the story without me. And it didn't make sense for Rankin to be a fishing guide without me bringing fly fishing to him. So, um, although the film project initially started as a story about Rankin and ended up being about both of us, but to answer your question about, did he nail it? Um, I don't think there has been a fly fishing film that has come close to this compelling of a narrative where you actually care about the characters this much. The fly fishing film industry has been largely about exploration, which I'm not criticizing. That's way cool. Um, and then they had, there has been a couple of films about like the old veteran guide and how cool his life was, right? Um, never has there been a film that floors all levels. So to have this narrative where you really identify with someone who chose drug running and you, what this film does, which is amazing to me is puts us in a spot where we don't know what we would have done then. That's what's crazy. You can look at cartel and drug runners and they're not us and that's crazy or whatever, but you put yourself in his shoes in that time in history where he was at, you, you, you wonder, right? Mm -hmm. So that was cool. And then the real-time exploration of a new piece of earth, which doesn't exist hardly at all, and all that exploration with the helicopters and drones and underwater and all the best fancy flashy fish that you could ever want also um, is going to be a very powerful movie. It really is. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I'm sure you're just excited, I'm sure, just to have it come out, just to share the story. That's the only reason. We, we really are... Don't need a, a, a bump in business or anything. It's just life is full of stories, and we're feeling very blessed that we're able to record and document this little piece of history that we were part of. You know, really, really neat. Um, how was your weather? Did it did it cooperate, or did you have some serious challenges at all with your weather? Man, another great question. I, I had originally wanted we wanted this to happen in. Um, we were scheduling it for December and that was just because of the time frames of trying to execute a project like this. It was always six months later than you really started in this. So it was set up for December and I just woke up one night and I was like, what am I thinking? I'm going to ruin the whole project because a Northern storm could blow through and I'm going to be sit spending all my prayers on good weather right before. So we switched it from December to March, which however, it's a windy time is typically not, um, cloudy and rainy, um, which is what shuts down permit fishing the most. And with all the boat trips back and forth, northern storms can make it dangerous. Now, we had pretty good weather. We had good enough weather to make a beautiful film and to catch some great fish. Um, there were some northern storms. I don't know. The weather patterns in the whole world seem to have shifted a little bit later, like it's taking longer to snow and then it's snowing for longer kind of thing. Yeah. Like our Northern storms down there are lasting into January, February, March when they used to mostly just be in the fall. So our first trip out, um, sending the snapper boats out, they had to go out even without our permission to move jet fuel to assume that we were going to and start building our satellite lodge, which was made out of lobster traps in a couple of years. The reason it was made out of lobster traps is because, the lobster boats had already unloaded traps on the key we use as a base. And um, we were forced to integrate those lobster traps into um, a base camp. 
and ended up being the coolest ever. We, if we needed a deck, we just had unlimited wooden boxes to make a deck. We made our tables, chairs, bed frames, our restaurant called the Lobster Pot. We had lobster every day. It was very much in a lobster-infused lobster fishing camp. But um, we had to send two snapper boats out, 45-footers full of supplies and um, 12 staff, which includes our four guys, chefs, um, the Navy and the boat crews and, um, some labor, but the weather turned on them and the boats were overloaded. And there I was like up at night, completely stressed about sending these awesome people on this tough ride. And then I drop in in a chopper. I felt really bad actually, but they're all people of the sea and they were fine. The captains that we were able to hire as a result of this project, I trust with my life and everyone's life that's on that boat. Um, that was another great pleasure of this project is I've, I've raised some young fishing guides in Guanaja and gotten to know their families, but the real leaders of their villages are the captains of the bigger boats. They're the captains of the freight boats, the captors of the shrimp boats, the lobster boats. And because of this faraway keys project, we needed some big boats. So basically my guys were able to call upon their uncles and dads and say, Steve's finally ready to bring you guys in. And they've been waiting for it. They want nothing more than to switch from snappering, lobstering, um, freight boating to, this kind of tourism, mm-hmm. you know, Captain Jimmy just, I paid him to get everybody there and then he got to sit, you know, and chill for the times we're fishing. And that's a lot easier than diving down for lobster where you get the bends. And, it, you know, basically that the beauty of this project is that it's taking an area that has been, um, providing some dangerous ways of life for people like lobstering, snappering and drug running and taking the same resource, the same area and, and offering an alternative, um, is, has been really well received. Um, and we'll see how the future goes, but it's, um, it, it, you felt like you were part of a little bit of shift in history for a particular area. And, um, at the, at the end it wasn't scary and it was really inspirational. Really. It was cool. It's got to be really rewarding to see it kind of taking shape. My question would be, you know, in a perfect world looking forward, how do you see it going? Well, it has been such a decompression of by pulling off the first season that I, I haven't looked far into the future. But um, I do have potential investors that would help us build a lodge out there. Um, with no strings attached, I've already gotten that offer. Um, you know, bottom line, I'm driven by providing more jobs for the people down there. That's been the most rewarding thing for me, more than any money that I've made or any fish that anyone's caught. Um, the real difference of providing a life for people down there has been just the most rewarding thing ever. So while the faraway Keys was in operation, so was Guanaja. So I had my whole crew in Guanaja plus almost a whole new crew. I was able to double cruise, basically. So whatever I need to do to continue that while preserving the fishery, giving my clients a safe time. Like, for example, next year we're doing nine weeks. Um, it's only two to three at a time with only three to four days in a row fishing. Um, still going to be booking Guanaja. Actually, our best week is you come to Guanaja, um, 
the first day, you fish one day in Guanaja, four days at the faraway keys, and then back in Guanaja. So what that means is you fly from the United States to Roatan directly, which is the big island, safe. You don't go to the mainland of Honduras. You fly right to Roatan, get there by the by midday from anywhere in the U.S., 15-minute flight to Guanaja. It's a beautiful lodge um, that sleeps eight, and you spend the night there, fish the first day in Guanaja, then the next morning, the helicopter will fly our guests out to the faraway keys where they'll fish another three and a half days and then come back to Guanaja on Thursday and fish the final day in Guanaja Friday. So it's a, it's a perfect, um, Guanaja is a perfect launching pad for the faraway keys because you have this buffer of integration. So you've, you've taken like, you've done lobster camp permit fishing far away that you could ever imagine. And then before you go right back into society, you've got our beautiful lodge where your family could have been too. You could bring the kids and wife to stay in Guanaja that time. We're, we're wonderful with families. We have a student program. It's nice and safe. And that's kind of what people are doing is they're going to combine now the two the two operations it sounds unbelievable uh but i hear in your voice you you feel a sense of responsibility at first from starting this but now it's become more than just a fishing adventure and operation you've met families and you have people that now are relying on you and that they have a little bit of a change of life and i'm i'm sure that i mean i can just hear it in your voice how you take that very seriously yeah i really didn't see that coming either um i was 30 years old when i started fly fish guanaja and now 40 and um you know it's taken 10 years for everyone on the island to start calling me jefe and you know i, I didn't earn jefe and except for in the last several years i feel like it's um it's a big responsibility and it's not one that I thought I signed up for but there literally are hundreds of people counting on me to keep this going so like if I have a tough week of fishing and people come back complaining because the bonefish aren't biting and stuff like I'm compelled by such a deeper reason than that day of fishing that I I, I will I will engage in that that guest there and tie the flies they need for the next day for a better day of fishing but I can like accept those tough days of fishing because um, what we're doing is providing a whole life for now some of our best friends, you know? And so fishing Guanaja is much bigger than just the fishing. It's a great fishery. I always will back it up. Um, but if you want to see a place where you're really making a difference by being there and people appreciate it and people actually are counting on it for their livelihood, um, it adds some depth to your travel, you know, and, and that's what Fish for Change is all about. We've had guests in Guanaja. Uh, my guests changed the island significantly in that we have the first real hospital going up. It's a medical clinic that's going to get upgraded to a hospital, but that's coming right from one of our guests through Food for the Poor. Um, Jeff Runfeld, our, one of our very favorite guests, has built a couple of computer labs and um, music rooms and other buildings for the school in Guanaja and pays for all the children of our staff to go there. Um, you know, it, it just, it goes on and on the impact of, of our people in this little place. So I guess that's kind of the short of it. And it's amazing. I want to shift gears for just a second. And I want to talk a little bit of tactics about, 
fishing for bonefish and then also fishing for permit, talk a little bit about tactics on each fish in general, like, you know, maybe your setup, your rig, kind of your go-to, you know, style of fly, your leader. And, and you mentioned that a cloudy day is like the worst thing you could have for permit fishing. I assume because you can't see them. I assume because maybe they can't see the fly or, or yeah. it's a v- visual thing and you can't see it. Talk a little bit about tactics for each fish. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as permit go, which I've been re- really f- focusing the most on lately, um, but, but th- I'd say these tactics are similar for both fish. Um, Caribbean fisheries are very delicate, and the first factor that you want is sun. The wind can come and go, and it does. You you have to learn how to be a good caster and deal with wind. That's just the way it is. And you have to learn how to position yourself so the wind isn't always fighting you. The wind can do the work. You just get the wind behind you. Um, but the sun is really a make or breaker for a lot of fisheries. Um, Guanaja, we have enough tailing fish where you can still find tailing fish when it's cloudy. But there's a whole another part of the fishery that you need to look down into the water a couple of feet. And there's parts of Belize where you, you're done if it's cloudy. Um, so that's why we typically fish in the spring, in the summer, um, because of the clouds. But permit fishing, um, you know, I it depends on your conditions. We'll use anywhere between an 8, a 9, or a 10 weight. Um, standard is kind of 10. You know, if you're a really good caster and you and you, you can kind of downsize rods here and there, a nine is good. And if you just have the calmest, flattest day where, you know, even pulling out your drag is spooking fish, then you can go to an eight weight. No problem. So eight, nine, or ten. Um, we're typically fishing nine-foot leaders. Some guides like to tack on up to 12, 13, 14-foot leaders depending on conditions. That's an arguable move. Um we're typically 20 pound test, um, floral, 20 pound test floral. Yep. And if you have light conditions and you're noticing that you're spooking fish, it's okay to go to 16 pound. In fact, some it's 16 to 20 pound, um, at the far away keys, we were breaking off fish cause they were so big that we went to 25 pound floral and the fish aren't as spooky there cause they've never even been approached by humans. Right. Um, so around 20, around nine foot, 20 pound test. And then you've got your fly selection, um, which we've learned so much in the past 10 years. We've really reinvented the wheel in a lot of ways, but, um, we've gotten our few patterns down that you have to have in your box versus like all 200 patterns that are out there, 30 of them anyway. We've got four patterns you need. And so that's helped out our fishing just to get that narrowed down. But permit fishing, a lot of it's done in the preparation. It's in your cast. It's in your fly tying at home or at least your studying of the flies and where to get the right flies. Um, And then being prepared with your knots. If you don't plan on catching a permit, then you won't. You know, like if you're using that um, nail knot that the shot put on, you know, your leader, you're going to break off your first permit in the first second, you know, so you prepare all the way through that you might actually max out all of this gear Mm -hmm. to the most. Um, And then just being someone who's patient and um, somehow able to stand there for sometimes um, a long time in the bow and be ready for that moment, which is often only about a 50, 40 even foot cast. 
but why it's so hard for someone to be ready in like a three-hour period to right now make a perfect 40-foot cast. It sounds easy, but that's when everyone disintegrates, and that's when all of a sudden that's when you needed to have that beer, or that's when your phone rang, or that's when you, you just had to take a false cast because you're bored and you just casted it. 11 o'clock for fun and the fish of course is going to show up at one o'clock and now you're stripping in your line there's just all these things that go wrong at the last minute but truly you just need to be in one spot ready to throw a fly about 50 feet on to a plate you know about a plate size don't have to be on a dime on a dime would be better but if you can put it you know within a foot um then you've done your part um as far as getting it there but you know as far as bone fishing um it's so fun and that's just a different game usually i I feel like for bone fishing we're in guanaha we're waiting a little more and and permit fishing we're in the boat a little more but is bone fishing for people that maybe aren't as experienced i mean can they go and have a pretty good time bone fishing where permit would just be frustrating for someone that maybe isn't doesn't have the experience right if you're going to your first saltwater trip um you you want to focus on bonefish they're going to be the strongest fish you've ever fought um beautiful cool and you're going to catch them and some bone fisheries you can catch a lot more than others like in guanaha catching three to five bonefish in a day is pretty average far away keys we're catching double digits you go to christmas island and spend the money and time to get really far like to the christmas island or seychelles you can go to these 20 to 30 bonefish day spots but um, even just catching one or two or three throughout these caribbean destinations is fun but definitely bone fishing is where you start and then you tend to graduate to catching permit um, permit you have to be if you're a permit angler um, and you're going to just hunt permit, you got to be okay with going on a week-long vacation and not catching a fish sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, most fisheries have all this array of, of other species that make it fun, too. There's nothing like a barracuda on a fly. They're everywhere a permit is. You can catch fish throughout the day, but if you're really on the permit mission and then you go back to you know home and everyone's like, again, you didn't catch another fish, it, it's a strange um, activity to others who don't get it, you know? Um but, yeah, you you don't just jump into saltwater fishing and go right to permit fishing. This would be like the double black diamond where you get sure. to. And it's not because of the challenge. I think the double black diamond part is about your mental. sort of your character and your mental. Like, wh- where are you at as an angler? Do you need to have your rod bent to be happy, you know? Or is, like, the ultimate pursuit and the ultimate rod bend going to be more worth it, you know? And that takes time. And I don't judge how anybody fishes, but it, it takes a certain kind of character to be a permit angler, though. So. For sure. Good stuff. You mentioned sharks. Um, do you guys catch quite a few sharks? Do you um, try to catch sharks, or does it just happen? We don't hunt sharks on the flats. Um, we do catch sharks sometimes off the deck of the lodge. Um, that's been kind of a cocktail hour thing. But if, if a couple of the clients end up with some bonita, um, as advised by the guides, then we cut up some bonita on the deck of the lodge. Blood brings five or six lemon, he- lemon sharks and um and uh, nurse sharks and reef sharks and we've had fun catching them off the deck and releasing them um that was a lot of fun a while ago and to be honest i I don't 
love that as much at night. It seems like somebody's going to get hurt. It's not great for the sharks and just kind of over it. It seems dangerous. And we've had several close calls, as you could imagine. (laughs) Um, But we did catch a really cool shark on film with a fly out at the faraway keys during a squall. And I hope that makes it into the film because it's like sharky weather and we catch this cool shark on a fly. Um, we don't have as many sharks as like in the Bahamas where they're knocking them away because they're eating bonefish and stuff. Um, where the sharks are interesting is because they are um, an indicator species and it's, it's the sharks that have inspired a couple of the organizations that I'm working with now that have a chance to protect any of it, um, are the sharks and it's, it's the mosquito people that come out and shark fish and that brings on a whole level of devastation that really isn't sustainable out there for a long period of time and um so we're working closely with the the protectors of the sharks so maybe that's why i want to catch them less off the deck too i understand (laughs) i understand um final question when you have so much adventure and doing your saltwater stuff do you find yourself less intrigued when you come back and do your 18th year in the Gunnison or, you know, trout fishing. I I could see how, if you've been on some of these great adventures, how everybody has like a stair step of, you know, oh, I do this and oh, I do this. And then this is the ultimate. Do you find yourself less intrigued with, say, trout fishing as you, do, as you were? Um, no, because just where I'm engaged at is you know is as as a guide and a teacher and a and a and a boss and it's um it's connecting with people at all those levels so the fish are are kind of the background so when i get to come back to the black canyon and float with some of my best guests and meet a couple new ones and make new friends and meet a whole new crew of people that are certainly going to come to guanaha now and put all my people to work and and uh but really even more at the end of the day is is to be with my wife and my baby son who's a year and a half and um, you know, I, I am obviously adventurous and, and have a thirst to see the world, but at this stage, the adventure I really want to engage in the most is my family. And so, um, coming back to the Gunnison and back to Colorado meant that I wasn't in a helicopter, you know, with the military at the faraway keys, taking all kinds of risks. I was, you know, I've got my baby in my hand and I'm back in Colorado where I'm used to. So, um, they complement each other, you know, I'll be excited to go back to the adventurous Caribbean, but, um, showing people the Colorado adventure and being at home with my family is, uh, is where it's at for me right this minute, you know, that's great. Where can people follow you? How can they find out more? How can they get a hold of you? Well, our Instagram is where we put our, we try to do a new photo every day and it's also, um, it tells a story. We, we try does. to tell it's a story. Phenomenal. Thanks. So, so we try to tell a story on our Instagram, which is a little different approach than just like the best next fish picture or whatever. So if you could follow fly fish Guanaja, which is G U A N A J A fly fish Guanaja on Instagram. That's our website. That's our Facebook. Um, fly fish Guanaja is our company. And, um, and I'm Steve Brown, and my, my email is steve, S-T-E-V-E, at 
guanaha.com and I still got it in the Black Canyon. I got it on the Roaring Fork and the Colorado. Um, June, I'm in the Stonefly Hatch in the Black Canyon, but um, the falls here in Colorado are the best. So I, I fish the Colorado and the Roaring Fork September, October, November. And love teaching, never evers, all the way up to experts. Um, it's I still love guiding. I haven't had one bad day in 18 years of guiding, not one. So I'll keep doing it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, it's been awesome having you on. I'm um, so excited to see the film, and I love following you on Instagram, and I encourage the listeners out there to do it because you bring value with each post rather than just a picture. Like you said, there's always um, text. There's always verbiage telling a story. And sometimes just the photos alone tell the story. Um, and it's it's been awesome to hear your level of passion that you have for what you do. And I look forward to uh, having you on again someday. And um, I can't wait to see how things progress. And just sounds like an unbelievable adventure out there. And uh, thanks for coming by. And I know we, we uh, had had some scheduling trying to make this happen, but I'm so glad it did. And it was really nice meeting you, man. You too. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for the time. And thanks for the great questions. You asked great questions. Thanks. Thanks. Well, um, I encourage everybody to check Steve out. And like I said, buddy, um, thanks again. And God bless till I see you next time. You too. Thank you, Jay.